Thank you so much. So if you have your Bibles, I want to read a number of passages to you. Firstly, from uh, 1 John chapter 2, and then from Matthew chapter 4, and a verse from Matthew 6. Let me read, first of all, from 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have Bibles, just uh, that's okay, but just listen carefully as I read these verses. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then I want to read you the story of the temptation of Jesus. Jesus was tempted with the world. That might surprise you, but it's true. Satan came to Jesus and he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ with these same three things that John has mentioned. He's just mentioned the desires of the flesh, the physical appetites that tend to lead us astray, the desires of the eyes, things that we we see that uh, tempt us, and the pride of life, times when we are so proud of ourselves that it does damage to us. Satan tempted Jesus with those things. Jesus was led up, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy temple and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, because it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil showed, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then one more verse I've got in my mind, part of the Lord's Prayer. We're told to pray for ourselves. And one thing we pray is Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, if you've been coming along to these various meetings, it doesn't matter if you haven't, but uh, if you have, I'm still pursuing the same theme. We are thinking about our great salvation, and especially I've been trying to focus on what I call working out salvation. We're to work out our salvation. You become a Christian by putting your faith in the blood of Jesus. But that's just the beginning. It's the beginning of a, of a journey. It's the beginning of a pilgrimage. It's the beginning of a building a life. It's pictured in the Bible as like a journey, like, a, like, a, like building a building. There are these pictures in Scripture. And uh, it's, this, it's this building of the Christian life, this running of the race, 
that I'm concerned about, this traveling upon a journey until we please God and enter into all of the things that God has got for us. And the great thing in it, the, big, the biggest thing, is, is to be a life of fellowship with God. And we've been pursuing that theme, some of us, in 1 John. This first letter of John is all about uh, having fellowship with God. And uh, John has a, a particular style of writing. It's very uh, circuitous. It's very, uh, it's very uh, meandering. He wanders around paragraph by paragraph. It's not very logical. It's meditative. It's reflective. He's just pondering these different things and sharing them with his friends. I think I can summarize it in, in about six. There's about six themes, uh, I would think, in one John, where John is, is wandering around uh, and he comes back to them several times. There's several paragraphs where he deals with love, several paragraphs where he deals with orthodoxy, with believing the gospel. There's about six themes that where he meanders around, pondering each one. And he, here's, here's the six. I'll give you a list of them. He's very concerned about what I would call orthodoxy. If you do not believe in the orthodox, ordinary, plain gospel of Jesus Christ, you're never going to have fellowship with God. It's no good having a deviant or a revised Christianity. You'll find if you revise the gospel, the revised version doesn't work. The gospel is that Jesus was the Son of God. He came into this world as a man. He was God and man at the same time. He died upon the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He rose from the dead. He's there at the right hand of the Father. He's the King of the universe. He's bringing many sons to glory. That's the gospel. If you try to revise it, you won't know God. And if you're tempted with a kind of revised version or a, a kind of altered Christianity, if you're a Christian but you're tempted to listen to some, some twisted version, you'll find that you lose fellowship. You'll find that it, it damages you. It changes your character. You start being so loving. You're not so gracious. You lose fellowship with the Lord. It damages you if you listen to a, a false gospel too much, which these people had been doing. So that's his big theme. He keeps on coming back to say, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. And then he tells us how to have fellowship. We, some of us looked at that. It's in chapter 1, verse 5, into chapter 2, verse 2. And he tells us it's basically a matter of, of being honest. God is holy. We are not so holy. And we have to be honest with God. We have to admit what he's saying. We have to confess our sins. And if we honestly hear his voice and do what he tells us and confess our sins and are honest about ourselves, then the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us. We'll feel forgiven, we'll feel washed, we'll feel clean. Our consciences, no matter what we've done, our consciences will, will feel clean because God forgives us and cleanses us. That's the great uh, center of the letter, I think, in, in, in that passage. And then he tells us a lot about the results of having fellowship. If, if you really want to know whether you are having fellowship then you, with God, then you ask the question, what's it doing for me? What, what are its results? It's not producing good results, then it's not the real thing. And the results are, it leads you to want to obey the Lord. And especially in what I call the love command, or we could call the love command. Jesus' commands are all about love. And uh, the three or four passages where he keeps on coming back to, to being loving, to, especially towards each other, to, towards everybody, but especially towards each other. It says in chapter 3, 18, we, we didn't look at that verse, but I, I can read it. If anybody sees his brother in need, 
but he closes his heart against him, then how does God's love dwell in him? If you, if you can see some fellow Christian in trouble and you don't do anything about it, well, what, what sort of a fellowship with God is that, says John? He works it out. The results are, are love and the results are, are life. Love and life. This is, this is what he wants to give you, says John. Several, several times he says it. He wants to give you eternal life. He'll give you liveliness. He'll give you vivacity. He'll give you uh, an awareness that God is a spiritual life. Not, not, physic, not so much physical or intellectual, but spiritual life, liveliness towards God. Eternal liveliness. And then John keeps on telling us that we must stay encouraged. We, that's, why, that's another reason why we should uh, think about the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is, is designed to keep us encouraged. We, we are to know that, that that blood of Jesus is always there. And uh, John has several paragraphs about that. He says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and we can reassure ourselves. We look to Jesus, and if we feel condemned and rejected, no, no, we go back to Jesus, and we, we, we restore our hearts. We restore our fellowship by trusting again. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of Jesus, his son. We're to stay encouraged. You won't be having fellowship, you won't be loving people if you're not rejoicing in God. The, the joy of the Lord, says the Bible, is your strength. And then another theme that we, we didn't look at, but it's here in 1 John, is you live in the light of the future. Uh, you, we, we're just in this world very temporarily. It's, it's going by fast. Life runs away with us very quickly. But we've got a hope. We have an expectation. And uh, the Bible tells us about Jesus coming again and this great hope that's uh, ahead of us. And John says, anybody who has this hope, anybody who gets hold of this hope, will purify himself even as Jesus is pure. It will impact you if you see where you're going and what your final ultimate destiny is. That's one of the themes of John. <coughs> but then there's another one, uh, number six in my order, and this is what I come to now. The secret of maintaining this fellowship is to deal with blockages. There are certain things that will block our fellowship. There are certain things that will hinder our fellowship. If you're bitter, if you're angry, if you're unforgiving, you will not be having fellowship with God. You won't feel forgiven. If you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. Which is not saying that you're not saved, you're not a Christian, but it's saying God, God won't be reassuring you and making you feel forgiven if you won't let other people feel forgiven. If you don't let others know of your love, then God won't let you know of his love. The way in which you treat others will affect you and your relation to God. That's part of the common teaching of Scripture. You have to deal with the blockages. And then... There's another thing, and that is that the world is all around us, and that world is always tempting us. And this is the thing that's here in these verses I've just read. He says to us in chapter 2, verse 15, Don't love the world or anything, the things in it. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in. You won't be enjoying God's love if you love what John calls the world, he doesn't mean the physical world, he doesn't mean people, he means the spirit of the world, the attitude of the world, this uh, preoccupation with things and pleasures and self-centeredness and glory for ourselves and sometimes even violence, these things that are characteristic of, of the world in its sin. 
If you love those things, you will not be enjoying the love of the Father. In other words, these things come along and they tempt you and they test you and uh, they entice you in, in, into looking at them and loving them too much. And if you get enticed, you lose your sense of the love of God. The love of the Father will not be in you. Whichever way you want to take that phrase, it can be taken in more than, uh, more than one way. You, you won't feel God's love for you. You won't feel your love for God. You won't feel the love among the Christian people that God gives us. Whichever, whichever way you want to take that phrase, the love of God, you will not be enjoying it if you are tempted and you, you get, get too enticed by what John calls the love of the world. So I, but I would put it this way. What it means is, is we have to handle these blockages. Certain things come along and they tend to block our fellowship, our anger, bitterness, uh, not not following Jesus, love command, enjoy loving the things of the world. This kind of uh, uh, wickedness that comes to us through the, the entire fallen human race, the things of the world. If we let those things get a hold of us, they will block and hinder and and uh, almost destroy the love of the Father that we are meant to be enjoying. So that's the the, the sixth uh, the sixth theme. And John keeps on dealing with it. We have to handle these things which tend to block the Christian life. This is something we have to get used to doing. Are you used to this? Every now and again in the Christian life, you find yourself, as it were, slipping away, and 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 it's not you're not so lively as you used to be. It can be a bitterness. It can be perplexity. Something happens to you, and you're so sort of puzzled, and you think, "Why is God doing this to me?" And you're questioning God, and. Uh, and so you're in spiritual trouble. These things happen to all of us, and they happen to all of us all the time. They come and they go. And when they come, you have to learn to handle them. That's the great message of the book of Psalms. When you read the book of Psalms, what you're seeing in the book of Psalms is these men who've got this problem and that problem. I remember reading once a book on, a book on the book of Psalms, and uh, the writer said, it's not possible, he said, it's not possible that David should have written half of these psalms. The Bible says that David wrote half of them. But I read a book once that said, uh, it's not possible that David could, could have written half of these psalms because no one man could have had all of these problems. <laughs> uh, that was his argument against David having written them. Look at all these problems he's got. He's, he's in trouble, he's running from people, he sons against him, he sins, he does this, he does that. No one man, he said, can have all of these problems. <coughs> Well, I don't think he's right. David did have all of those problems. And so did the other ones. They all, they all get bitter, or they fall, or they're, or they're lonely, or, they're, or they can't get to the temple, and they're, they're, they're complaining. And what they do is they go to God, they write a song, they're very musical and poetical, they write a song, they write a hymn, in which they're handling themselves. Sometimes they talk to themselves, oh my soul, why are you cast down? And they sort of rebuke themselves and get, bring themselves back. That's what we have to learn to do. We have to learn to handle ourselves. When we see ourselves going after the world, we sort of face ourselves, why are you doing this? Why, why, do you really want to get tangled up in some, in some wickedness? And we handle ourselves and we face ourselves and we extricate ourselves in the power of the Spirit of God. And John says, don't let this happen to you. Don't love the world. He's, he's taking it for granted that we can deal with this, that we can handle it. He's taking it for granted that these things will come and tempt us from time to time. Don't, don't let this happen to you, says John, because the things of the world will, will block this love of the Father. You won't be enjoying fellowship 
with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Father if you let these things get a hold of you. Well, the great example, as I say, the great example of, of this is Jesus. It's not sinful to be tempted. And the proof of that is that Jesus was tempted. So just because something may really entice you doesn't mean you've sinned. Satan always makes us feel we've sinned, even if some thought crosses our mind. No, no, you've not sinned just because some thought crosses your mind. You've not sinned just because something is pulling you and attracting you. That's Satan, that's his sin, not yours. You haven't sinned until you welcome these things and you you say, oh yeah, I'll I'll go for it, and you start getting enticed and you get drawn in. And and, uh, James says that no one one sins until until he actually acts and does that thing he ought not to be doing. So temptation is not sin. Don't feel that you're a wicked guy just because you're tempted. Satan can put all sorts of things into our head. Have you not found you're a Christian? I'm speaking to you as a Christian. Have you not found that sometime you're in some situation and suddenly from nowhere some weird sort of temptation comes into you and you think, why did I think about that? You don't even know where it comes from. And uh, it's a proof that it's satanic. Some ugly, filthy, vile thing crosses your mind. You think, think, where did that that thought come from? It comes from the devil. There's such a thing as satanic attack. And uh, don't think it's from you. It's not from you at all. You get some weird pressure upon you, tempting you to do something so foolish. Some woman, maybe, some man, maybe. Some, some theft, some lie, it would be so foolish, you, 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 you'd be incredibly stupid to go that way. And yet the thing sort of appeals to you and attracts you and it's just kind of pull upon your heart. It's from the devil. It's from the devil. Don't you worry too much about it. It's from the devil. But resist it. Resist it and he'll flee from you, says the Bible. But don't, don't feel too depressed just because these things cross your mind. It happens to all of us. You don't talk about them too much, but it happens to all of us. Satan knows how to attack us. And it happened to Jesus. That's the very proof that it's not sinful. Because if it was sinful, then it couldn't be in the life of Jesus. But uh, even Jesus had these kind of temptations. You remember the story? He had been fasting for six weeks, for 40 days, nearly six weeks. He had been fasting, getting ready to begin his ministry. And just at that point, Satan comes to him with all sorts of uh, pressures and temptations. And there are three there's more than three, but three main ones. Or I, could, I think I can make it about five. There's a number of things that Satan is uh, pressurizing Jesus to do. First of all, Satan is pressurizing Jesus to doubt. You notice how again and again Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, do this and this and this. He keeps on saying, are you really the Son of God? If you, if you really are, he's tempting Jesus to doubt. And if you remember the story, Jesus has just had an amazing experience. 
He has just been baptized in the River Jordan. And as he was baptized in the River Jordan, a voice came from heaven, You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. And as that voice from heaven comes, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in the form, taking a visible appearance like a dove. And he is anointed or baptized by the power of the Spirit. And Luke tells us that he gets up and he goes out in the, in the fullness, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just had the greatest experience of his life. He's always, he's been, he's been full of the Holy Spirit all of his life. He was born of the Holy Spirit. But now there comes something extra. There comes something which he's never known before. The voice from heaven giving him a kind of double assurance that he is the Son of God. He already knew that. As, as a 12-year-old boy, he said, I must be about my father's business. He already knew that he was the Son of God. But uh, there's such a thing as a doubling of your assurance. There's such a thing as an intensification of your assurance. Uh, in another place, talking about Christians, the Bible says that his spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are children of God. We, we know already, we already know, our spirit already knows, but then the Holy Spirit doubles what we already know. His spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And that happened to Jesus. Jesus already knew that he was the Son of God, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. And uh, the Spirit came down and, and gave him a, a double assurance, the voice from heaven, you are my Son. I'm about to send you into your ministry. I'm pleased with you. You're going to be, you're going to be the Savior. And he's launched upon his ministry. Jesus had just had the biggest experience of his lifetime that he had never known before. He was 30 years old. He'd never known that before in, in his younger days. And it is at that point that Satan comes to him, and Satan attacks him at that point. If you, if you really are the Son of God, that's the very thing that's just happened to him. When you get the greatest blessing of your life, don't be surprised if it's not followed by Satan attacking that very thing. The very thing that is the greatest blessing you've ever known, don't be surprised if that's the very thing if that's not the very thing that comes, as it were, under attack. And so Jesus is tempted to doubt. He's tempted to doubt the very thing that he's getting involved in, his ministry, his being the Son of God, his bringing salvation to the world. That's the very thing he's about to embark upon. That's the very thing that Satan attacks. And he's, uh, he's tempted to doubt. And again, I say, don't, don't worry too much if you are tempted to doubt. And you think, well, do I really believe all this? Do I really believe all this stuff? And, and suddenly you're sort of horrified with the thought of, well, maybe, well, maybe none of it's true. And, and, and the most amazing uh, temptations to doubt the entire gospel crosses your mind. Don't, don't worry too much about it. It's satanic. It's satanic. It comes from Satan. Just keep on working things out. Keep on reading the scriptures. Remind yourself of what God has done for you. You'll, you'll come through. But don't, don't worry. Don't, don't uh, feel that you're, you're guilty of some unforgivable sin just because some terrible doubt crosses your mind. It happened to Jesus. The biggest thing of his life, his ministry, his being the divine son of God, his being anointed with the Spirit. Satan attacked him to doubt, tempted him to doubt at that very point. So temptation involves temptation to doubt. But not only that, the particular details are, the, are those three things that John mentioned. He's, first of all, attacked at the level of the flesh, the physical. 
makeup of the human person. Satan comes and says, look, you're hungry. You have not eaten for six weeks. You've been fasting. You've just been drinking a little bit of water, keeping yourself alive. But otherwise, you've not eaten for six weeks, and you're hungry. And here are these stones. They, 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 just, they look just like Israeli loaves, these little round loaves that are made in ancient Israel. They, these stones, these white glistening stones, they look just like bits of, lo- of bread anyway. Why don't you just do a miracle? You're the son of God. You can do anything. Why don't you turn them into bread? And just at the point where Jesus is so hungry, he comes being tempted, Satan comes tempting him to make some food for himself. And Jesus was never to do a miracle for himself. He never did. His miracles were not for himself. They were for others. And it wouldn't have been right for him to do that. He comes just at the point when he's at his weakest, just at the point when he's so lonely, just at the point when he's so hungry, and he's not eaten for six weeks. At that very point, Satan pressurizes him and attacks him. And that's typical of Satan. He will come to you at your weakest point. When you're lonely, he'll tempt you to relate to some person you ought not to be relating to. When, when you're poor, you've lost your money, you've just, you've just lost your job, he'll tempt you to do something with regard to money, which is not God's way for you. But he'll come to you at the very point where you are in need, especially in terms of the flesh. When you're hungry, when you're lonely, when you're sexually aroused, maybe. He'll come to you in terms of your body and, and use the very physical appetites of your body. Latony and greed and, and misusing our sexuality, these things, they come to us through the body. They're, they're, they're physical things. And Satan will, will attack you and oppress you through your, your, your physical nature. Did it to Jesus? He did it to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said to Eve, look at, look at, this, look at this, nice, this nice fruit. It is good for food. He's appealing to her, her physical hunger. Satan will use the weakness of our bodies the, the impulses that come to us through our bodies. He did it to Jesus. He did it to Eve. It's what John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of our physical nature. And then Satan will come and he'll use two other things. I'm just trying to get the order right. Matthew's order and Luke's order is different. He took him to the holy city, and he set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he says, throw yourself down. Satan will appeal to our, our desire for glory, our desire for success, or putting it the other way around, Satan will use the fact that we hate to be, as it were, embarrassed and uh, put down, and uh, anything we do which will disgrace us or make us feel foolish. He appeals to our our, our love of praise, our love of glory, our, our, our sensitivity to what people think about us. He'll attack us at that very point. And he did it to Jesus. He said to Jesus, you, you want to be famous? You want to be the Messiah? You want all sorts of people to follow you? Well, do something sensational. Cast, throw yourself down from the top of the, of the, the temple and you'll have thousands who, who become your followers. He's appealing to, our, uh, to Jesus uh, who is to be glorified as the Saviour and he does it to us. He appeals to our sense of glory, our, our wanting to be good in the eyes of others. Sometimes you, you do something so stupid, and the only reason why you do it is to look good in the eyes of other people. 
or you tell, you, you tell some outrageous lie, some, some cover-up, some total deceit, and the only reason why you're doing it is you don't want others to, to know what's going on. You're sort of presenting an image to the world, but you're tangling yourself up in sin, in lies, in deceit. And, and Satan tempted Jesus that way. Look, look uh, you don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to die. You don't, you don't need to go the way of, of uh, shame and uh, betrayal and Peter and Judas and all this. Just, just throw yourself down and you'll get the crowds following you anyway. You don't need to go that way of the cross. But, but he's appealing to Jesus to take a shortcut to, to glory, a shortcut to being famous, a shortcut to get the crowds to follow him. He's appealing to Jesus, concerned for his own glory. Uh, that's what John calls the pride of life. I, I see the ESV says the pride of possessions, but I, I changed the word to the, the Greek word says life. The pride, the pride of life. This, this, this pride that we take in ourselves, this desire to feel good. And you remember Satan came to, G, to, to Eve and said, take of this fruit of the tree, it is desirable to make you wise. People will, will say how marvelous you are, how clever you are, how much you know. It is desirable to make you wise. He's doing the same thing. He's appealing to her sense of pride. He's appealing to her sense of getting honor and glory from others. She's going to be the famous wise lady who knows all about God. He's, he's appealing to this sense of, of pride and glory. We're meant to have glory. The very essence of the human race is that we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're meant to have honor. We're meant to have uh, respect for each other. We're meant to have glory, but we're not meant to get to it in the wrong way. We get to our honor and glory by serving God and let God, God give us glory. We're meant to have glory, but we're meant to get it from God. Don't take a shortcut. Don't try to get honor and fame for yourself. Don't care what, peop- what people think of you. I sometimes wonder whether it doesn't happen to every Christian that sooner or later something happens which, as it were, strips them of any kind of glory or honor. And at that point they have to say, I don't care. I'm living for God. It happened to Jesus. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, when he was on the cross, Jesus was undressed. They took his clothes away. They hung him there naked. His mother was there watching him. They were ridiculing him. They were scoffing at him. They were laughing at him. They were mocking his very work. You're the king of Israel. Come down, save yourself. It was so shameful. You talk about glory. You talk about being proud of yourself. How do you think Jesus felt hanging naked upon the cross, being ridiculed and despised by everybody, having done all of these miracles? He can't. He, God will not let him do a miracle to save himself. And his mother's there, and he's naked, he's undressed, and everybody's laughing at him. This, the shame, the disgrace, the squalor of what, of what was happening upon the cross, Jesus had to despise it. I don't care. I'm going to that cross anyway. And I rather think that sooner or later something like that happens to every Christian. Sooner or later something happens to you where your very reputation is at stake. And if you really go God's way, you're going to be in disgrace. It may be that some story goes around about you. It may be that someone tells some outrageous lie about you and you can't defend yourself. Think of Joseph in, in the Old Testament and Mrs. Potiphar. Someone said, Mrs. Potiphar said, this, this man, he tried, to, he tried to do this. And poor old Joseph, he can't, he can't defend himself and he's thrown into prison. He stays there for years. The shame, the, the injustice, the unfairness. Oh yeah, but Joseph had to go through it. 
despising the shame. Sooner or later, God's likely to put you in some situation where you, you lose your whole reputation or some scandalous story goes around about you. He has no truth in it whatsoever. And you, have to, and you can't do anything about it. You can't, you can't disprove it. And you have to say, all right, I'll let God take care of my reputation. I won't live for what other people think of me. I live for God. You have to not care too much about glory. You have to not care too much about what people think of you. And you go for the honor of God only. You remember what Jesus said? He said to the Pharisees, how can you believe? How can you have faith? How can you go on believing God? How can you believe if you receive glory for one another, but you don't go after the glory that comes from God? It blocks faith to want too much glory. It stops you believing if you want too much glory. It stops you trusting in God if you want glory from other people. How can you believe if you get glory from one another? And so somewhere along, along the life, Satan will tempt us, and he tempts us along this line, the pride of life, the feeling good in the eyes of others, getting a bit of a, a good reputation, be, be, being, keeping up with the Joneses, as, as, we, as we say in Britain, seeming to be a successful guy, living for the appearance of success, living for the appearance of doing well, but actually maybe not doing too well at all. And it tempts you and it deceives you and you tell lies and you get into deceit and before you know where you are, you're trapped. And you, and, you, and you lose fellowship with God. You don't have any fellowship with God when you do that. You lose fellowship with God. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, you want honor? You want glory? I'll tell you how to do it. Throw yourself down. All sorts of people will come and, and, and praise you and admire you. The pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, the flesh, the pride of life, I'm putting them in the wrong order, but it's all right. And then he will use what John calls the lust of the eyes. Haven't you noticed how powerful eyesight is? You see something. It might be a good-looking woman. It might be a handsome man. It might be that, that dress in the window shop, in the shop window. You see something and immediately you, you want that thing. You remember what happened to David. He's there on top of the palace, walking around on top of his palace, and he sees Bathsheba. If he hadn't seen her, he'd be all right. The blinds have been down and the windows have been closed. He'd have been all right. But he sees this stunningly beautiful woman, and you know the rest of the story. It, the, the, the temptation comes along the, the, the channel of what he sees. You remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7. They were told not to take any of the gold of the Canaanites. It was all to be destroyed. But Achan saw this amazing gold booty from, from the Canaanites, and he wanted it. It's something which comes to you through the eyes. Your eyes are the most uh, sensitive and powerful channel down which Satan tempts us and attacks us. Things that we would not think of doing until we see something, especially in sexuality, but also with regard to money and other things. And so Satan takes Jesus, 
and he shows him, he shows him, he gives him a kind of vision upon the top of the temple, he shows him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, he gets a vision, he gets a sight of all of this amazing world that's out there and says, I'll give it all to you, if only you will fall down and worship me. He comes along the the uh, the channel of our eyesight. And John talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are things that will damage fellowship if we yield to them. John takes it for granted that we don't have to yield to them. He says, don't let this get into you. He's, he's taking it for granted that uh, we are capable of handling this. We're Christian people. We have the Holy Spirit. We are capable, we can deal with it, we can deal with sin, we're, we're in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that temptation of Eve, when the woman saw that the, the tree was good for food, there's the body, when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, there's the lust of the eyes, when she could see that the tree was desired to make one wise, there's the pride of life. Same three things, you see. Well, then the question is, how do we deal with it? How did Jesus deal with these amazing and powerful temptations that came to him through Satan? Well, two things. He used God's word and he prayed. First of all, he, in that order, he used God's word. He would say, it is written. Every, every time Satan came to him with these various attacks, he would quote scripture, and do you notice he would quote one verse? He would just say, it is written. And he would quote one sentence from the scripture. He wouldn't sort of say, well, listen, to, stay there for a while while I preach a sermon. He's not an expounding whole book of the Bible. He's taking one scripture. Sometimes one verse of the Bible will enable you to stand when you're in temptation. If you know your Bible, if you are in a habit of reading your Bible, if you know something that you can quote, sometimes one verse of Scripture will hold you. Uh, that's what happens to Jesus. He says, no, there's a verse in Scripture that says, and he applies the Word of God. In other words, one verse of Scripture uh, enables Jesus to stand against Satan. You see, when you're being tempted, haven't you discovered this? When you're being tempted, you can't think straight. When you're in a time of temptation, you, would, you will do something that, that five minutes later you will see is so incredibly stupid. But you, you don't see it at the time. At the time, this thing tempts you and you want this and you're tempted to do this and you're going to steal this or to tell this lie or go in this direction and, and it's so appealing, it's so attractive, you really want to go there. The very second you do it, you'll see how stupid you were. But at the time, you can't think straight. When, you, when you're being tempted, you, you, you can't think clearly. Haven't you discovered that? When you're in a situation that, that oppresses you, you, you can hardly think straight. You have, to, you have to sort of get out of it to be able to think straight. I remember the days when I used to live in South Africa, some of you come from South Africa, in the old apartheid days. I used to find it so difficult to think, to think clearly about South Africa in those apartheid days. When I really wanted to do some planning living in apartheid South Africa, I would go to Swaziland. I would literally get out of the country to be able to think straight. 
you, you, you could you hardly think straight. In old apartheid South Africa, you'd have to be in a different country. And I would find that South Africans who went, who went abroad were totally different from South Africans who'd never been abroad. They'd go abroad and they come back totally transfer, transferred, transformed. They could see things outside the country that they just couldn't see clearly when they were in the country. It's a bit like that with temptation. If, if you're sort of outside the whole situation, you can, you can think clearly. While you're in the situation, you, you really are confused. The only thing that will hold you in that situation is the Word of God. If you can say, well, I, you know, I can't really think very clearly about this, but I know this, this is something I will not do. Because you see something clear in Scripture, and one verse of Scripture will hold you. And this is the way Jesus did it. And incidentally, he could only do it because he knew his Bible. He didn't say to Satan, well, just stay there for a moment. There's, there's some verse in Deuteronomy somewhere. Let me, let, me see if, let me see if I can go and find it. No, he, he's not sort of struggling to find the right verse. He already knows his scripture. He already can quote the exact thing he needs to be able to quote. He knows his Bible. Do you know your Bible when you're in trouble? Are you able to quote the very thing that you need at that particular point? That's what you need. You need to be able to know your Bible to such an extent that you can quote the very thing you need to quote when you're in trouble. If you don't know your Bible, I don't know quite how you can do that. But when you know your Bible, you say, no, you shall not commit adultery. No, you shall not steal. No, let your yes be yes and your no, and your no be no. Anything other than this is evil. It's not some simple, clear instruction of Scripture. If you can stand upon it, if you can, you can use it to hold you, you use it not to be confused... When you're in temptation, when you're being tempted, you can't think straight. But sometimes some little thing will hold you. Some little thing will stop you. And God helps you. God is there with you. God will put things in your mind. He'll, he'll bring things back to your remembrance. Remember, Scripture says he'll bring all things to our remembrance. Suddenly you're about to do something so foolish, but you remember something. You say, no, no, I mustn't forget that. And it rescues you. You hold on to things that you know. Hold on to scriptures that you know. Jesus would even, you may say, well, this is very uh, babyish. Is, 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 is this really what it's like? It sounds very sort of uh, infantile, you might say. To which I answer, if Jesus needed to do this, then so do you. The Son of God needed to keep his mind clear, you need to keep your mind clear. The Son of God needed to stand on particular scriptures. Don't think that you can stand up to Satan without it. If he needed to do this, then so do you. And then the last thing is that this comes in the Lord's Prayer. In other words, we pray about this. In the Lord's Prayer, we begin by praying for God. We pray for God's kingdom more than we, before we pray for our own kingdom. We pray that God's name might be hallowed, that his kingdom might come, that his will might be done. Three things you pray for God, his glory, his kingdom, his will. You pray for three things for God. And then you pray for yourself. You're allowed to pray for your daily bread. That's nice. Very ordinary things. You just need some money. You just need something to keep you alive. You can't serve God if you can't stay alive. You better pray for your daily bread first. Keep yourself alive. Pray, pray for your needs. God, God lets you do that. You've got a need. You say, I can't really survive unless I have a bit more cash. Oh, well, just go to God and ask him. He doesn't mind us praying for daily bread and ordinary things. Pray for your daily bread. 
You pray for your relationship with the Lord, which is damaged by sin. You ask him to forgive you. You've got things in your past that have damaged you. It's like, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive us our trespasses. I forgive everybody else. You please forgive me. And then you pray, Lord, don't let me go into temptation. It doesn't say, it doesn't mean don't let me be tempted. It says don't let me go into temptation. Don't let me be in such a situation that I can't think straight and do something foolish. Lord, uh, just protect me from, from making some foolish mistake. You pray about your life. You want to do what's right. Don't walk into some situation you ought not to be in. You pray, Lord, don't let me go into temptation. And the, you understand it if you'll emphasize that word into. Don't let me go into something which I can't cope with. Don't let me walk into some relationship where I do something stupid. Don't let me be so poor that, that I'm, I'm, I'm likely to steal. Don't let me be in some situation where I can hardly stand up against the sinfulness of my own nature. Don't let me do that, Lord. You pray for yourself. We're meant to pray for ourselves. We pray, we pray for God's kingdom. We pray for God's friends. We pray for our church. We're meant to pray for ourselves as well. Pray for yourself as well. Pray that God will keep you in his will, that he'll keep you sensible and, and, and in charge of your life. Pray that you'll understand the scriptures. Pray that you'll have the power of the Holy Spirit. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does the Heavenly Father know how to give the Spirit to those who ask him? Ask him for the Holy Spirit. You say, I've already got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, ask him for more. Ask him ask to be baptized and, and receive outpourings of the Spirit again and again. You need the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit. And that verse I've quoted comes immediately after the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel. The answer to the Lord's Prayer is the Holy Spirit. Pray that you won't come into some situation you can't cope with. Pray that you'll know the Scriptures. Be a man or a woman of prayer. And if you're a man or a woman of prayer, and if you know the Scriptures and you're able to use them in spiritual conflict, spiritual battle, you'll stand. And when you fall, it's all right. If, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As long as you're in this battle and you're fighting the fight of faith, well, sometimes you fall. There's nobody here who's not fallen. Sometimes you make a mistake. Sometimes you do something you shouldn't do. All right? The Lord is still with you. Get up again. Get, confess it, get rid of it, and get up again. You haven't got, it's like climbing a mountain, but when you climb a mountain and you fall, you don't fall all the way to the bottom, you just fall where you are. Get up and start climbing again. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he's the sacrifice for our sins. He's not given up on us, he's still there, he's still talking to the Father about us, his blood has still got power. Get up again and move on and keep on climbing. Climb the mountain for God. You want fellowship with God. The great secret of the Christian life is fellowship with God. But watch the world. Watch this spirit that comes in that the Bible calls the world. Watch the world. Don't let these things come into you. Deal with it. Handle yourself. Otherwise they will block and they will damage fellowship. You'll lose fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Son. Deal with these things, says John. And you'll know the love of the Father. Don't love the world. Don't love the things, the, the mentality of the world. It's not you don't love people. It's not you don't love creation. You can enjoy God's creation. You can enjoy the sunshine and the sunset. 
You can even enjoy the snow if you're really, if you're really coming from Africa, you like it. But uh, you can enjoy the sunshine, you can enjoy the weather, you can enjoy creation, you can enjoy your food, you can enjoy a good book, you can enjoy good novels, anything you can, you can enjoy with thanks to God. All right, nothing is unclean in itself, enjoy God's world. But don't get into the mentality of wickedness. Enjoy God's creation. You don't have to be an ascetic or some narrow-minded guy. No, no, enjoy the whole of God's world. But don't let yourself get into sin. Don't let the things of the world damage you, says John, because you'll lose the love of the Father. The flesh, watch over that flesh. You've got to mortify the deeds of the body that you might live, says the Bible. Watch over those things that come to you through the flesh. Watch over these things. Don't look at these things or gaze at these things, which will not help you. Watch over the lust of the eyes. And don't live for earthly glory. Don't live for earthly praise. Live for the praise of God. And if you will live that way, you will enjoy the fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son. You'll feel the presence of God. You'll feel the presence and the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your feelings go up and down. I'm not saying it's all steady, all on a, on a plane. It's not. But generally speaking, you will feel and be conscious of the presence of God in your life. Live for that fellowship. Say, say to the Lord, Lord, I want your fellowship more than I want anything in the world. As the deer thirsteth for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, the living God. Thirst for this presence and power of God in your life. It is the most wonderful blessing. And if you can do that, you can do all the other things. You can pray, you can resist sin, you can serve God, you can achieve things, because God is with you. There's a kind of anointing, there's a power resting upon you. The fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son. Don't lose it. Keep it. Walk in the light. Confess your sins. Deal with anything that blocks it and damages it. Don't let the world creep in. Make sure, keep yourself. Jude puts it like this. Jude says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in this fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. Praise God. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you will apply this word to each one of us this morning. We, we want you. We want fellowship with you more than anything in the world. We want to know your spirit. We want to feel your touch of power. We want to be able to quote that scripture that is so precisely to our needs. Please come, Lord, upon us and teach us by your Holy Spirit. Build us up in our most holy faith. Teach us to go after you, to hunger for you, to meditate upon your word day and night until we are like a tree planted by the waters, as, as your word says, until we're like a tree planted by the waters that brings forth its fruit day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. May we be like that, Lord, rooted in you, grounded in your presence, grounded and rooted in your love, day by day. Do it for us. And if all these things are strange to us, if, if we are not even knowing what this is all about, then Lord, please come and teach us and show us the way until we know you and we know that we know you. Come and do it for us, each one. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.